Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I've got my power panel still in studio, Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. We are uh, doing what we call Guide Talk, which happens Thursdays. And this is the extended version uh, today because we've got a little extra time. We're going to take advantage of that. In the first hour, we were asking if men in relationship are pursuing their wives for prayer and Bible study or just prayer. And the answers were a very resounding no, unfortunately. A couple people said yes, and a comment just came in. I remember the one time he did, we had guests over Thanksgiving, and right before eating, he says, let's say grace. And we all bowed our heads. Then he said, grace. And we started eating. And that was the beginning of the end of our marriage. It's heartbreaking. It's sad. I I often wonder, Bill, why do people get married in the first place? If you're not going to be investing in your spouse 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, 40 years down the road, why get married in the first place to make somebody else miserable? But that often happens. All right. Let's uh, move on. A lot of great questions here. Uh, There's a question about uh, revelation. Now, where did it go? Let's see. I sent it to you, Jeff. Here it is. Could the panel explain Revelations twenty two eleven? This is one of these verses. You know, when you read and you've read a passage over and over, and you get to a verse that you you just don't exactly maybe know what it precisely means, and so you just kind of skip over it over and over again. And I, this, for me, this is one of these passages. So if you wanted to talk about verse 10 or verse 12, I'm ready to do either one of those. But verse 11 is one of these that's like, it says this. So let's read it and deal with it and see if we can discuss it here. Let the one, so Revelation 22 in this chapter, John has seen the vision. Uh, he's just concluded the vision of this new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem, our eternal state. And it comes back out of that vision, back to the angel who is describing these things to John and guiding John through these visions. And at the end of that, it says this, let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right and let the holy person continue to be holy. And then verse 12, Jesus says, look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me. So we're virtually at the end of John's vision, the end of the book of Revelation and the end of scripture. Now, at first glance, it might appear like God is saying that if you're evil, just go ahead and continue to do evil. If you're vile, just do vile. And that's what I want you to do. Um, I don't I don't believe that's what it is. God is good. He doesn't want you to do evil or to do wrong or be vile. That's not God's desire for any person. He wants every person to believe in him and become holy and act holy to do what is right. I, I think the heart of this passage is that, look, things are going to continue on in this world until the time of the end, which John was seeing. Good will do good. 
Evil will do evil. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Um, There's nothing new under the sun. You know, it's interesting to me why, when we look out into the world, are we surprised that the lost world acts lost? That is how it's been since the beginning. And I think that's at the heart of this passage. I don't know. Tom, what do you think about this passage? Yeah, I think you're in the right ballpark here on this. This is a difficult one because— We don't envision the Lord ever endorsing evil. I don't think he's endorsing evil here. He's simply saying, you know, as the as the end comes, as the the the, finally the book is opened, as the Lord comes to bring judgment, those that are evil are not going to listen, and they're still going to continue to do evil. Those that are righteous are going to depend on me and continue to be righteous, and I will deal with that in the end because I'm the Alpha and the Omega. So I think the bottom line is it is a warning. To everyone out there, if you're evil, your time's running out. If you're righteous, you know, the time is soon. And uh, so I agree with you. I think that's really what it is. It's a confusing verse, but at the same time, it simply identifies people for who they really are. There is a core message in the book of Revelation, really in, in all of Scripture, that there are two roads. There are two paths. There are two destinies. Um, one for the righteous and one for the unrighteous. And you cannot miss that truth because it shows up in the Gospels and the epistles and in the book of Revelation that there are two destinies. He who has the Son has eternal life, and he who does not have the Son is destined for eternal death. Yep, good word. Nicely done, gentlemen. All right, question, next question. When describing that all sinners, that all are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God— what do you do if somebody understands that and understands that they need to repent, but they don't seem to sense or understand how they've hurt God by their sin? Can they still repent if they understand it intellectually, but they might not have a spiritual sense of it yet? Any advice on how to approach this? I'll give you a first shot, Jeff. Let me translate that code. Tom doesn't know yet. <laughs> there, I remember reading that some people who have studied this have said that the average person needs uh, seven touches or seven proclamations in order to finally come to the point where they will accept it and believe and be saved. So it's it's. I think it's a rare thing that someone hears the gospel of salvation and immediately turns and says, "That's true. I'm going to accept it and believe." I think that can happen, but this this analysis basically said people need to be exposed to this truth, and over time, it becomes real to them. Look, I don't know what the barriers are to any particular individual to believing what I see is the truth. And that truth is that Jesus came to this earth. He was God in the flesh. He lived a sinful life. He died for the sins of the world and he rose again. And God says, if you believe that you will be saved. And I think there's lots of barriers that people have um, in their own self that prevents them from believing that. But uh, so, I mean, I think there's lots of different answers. Intellectually, we need to understand it to be true. This is the word, by the way, for, for believe in the Greek. The Greek word is pistuio. We need to intellectually understand that this truth claim is true and then entrust it for our salvation. And I think there's a – one of the prerequisites to getting there is to understand that you are sinful 
and God is holy, and there's a gap between those two that only Christ can fill. You've touched on a good point when you look at pistuo in the Greek. Basically what that is, it is a declaration that this is true. It is a statement of fact that I am a sinner, that I need a Savior. I think too often we mix that up with emotions. And I have worked with so many people over the years. I have seen people come to Christ without any tears, without any great, you know, uh, emotion, and yet repent and ask Jesus in their life. And some of them became great leaders in the church. I have seen others with great emotion, and the tears just flow and flow and flow. And some of them went on to be great leaders. But I've seen others that it lasted about a week, and then they were back to their old way of life. And I didn't quite understand that. So I think... The thing of it is, this is a, a declaration of repentance, is an agreement with Jesus, an agreement with the Word, that I am a sinner and that I need Him, whether I have the emotional response or not, because the Lord is going to work on the individual as they're an individual. And so I try to take people where they're at and then move them along from there. All right. Here's a tough one. And this is going to... Uh... Do we ever have easy ones? No. It doesn't seem like we have easy ones. <laughs> I mean, they're very heartfelt and and they're hard to read. and And I I start uh, I, I start praying as I'm even looking at these. Like, Lord, is this what we should be? Uh, how do we handle this? Because you know we're not psychologists. We're just guys here that want to talk about God's word and apply it in our lives in real practical ways. So anyway, oh. here's the comment. Um, what is the best approach for my 65 year old brother who has gone through much heartache. His wife died after five years of marriage with cancer and about 10 years ago. Uh, and then his stepdaughter was in a car accident, uh, two years ago. He also, he has also had two heart attacks, including a triple bypass and the implant of a heart defibrillator. He's also a hoarder and has totally isolated himself and is depressed, angry, and bitter. He does not want to communicate with family unless necessary he does not want to talk about God. He can relate to others, but only when obligated to be polite. My heart breaks for him. Oh, my heart would break for him too. Oh, that, mine does. That is a very difficult situation to get through. Um, I've run into some people like that in life. They're very hard to talk to. They don't want to talk. And I just learned I had to spend most of my time listening to them, letting them tell me what they want to talk about. Surprisingly, even the most hard-hearted people or the most bitter people, you give them a long enough time to talk and they feel like they're in a safe environment, it is astounding how they bring up spiritual issues. I don't have to bring it up for them. I don't need to tell them they're a sinner and need a savior or anything else. They start talking about shame and guilt in their life. But they need to know that you're listening to begin with. And I think too often as Christians, and we're too anxious to tell people, you've got to repent and receive Jesus. I like that. I mean, I think that's true. But the process of getting there isn't always as quick as we'd like it to be. And with this 65-year-old, uh, I know he's isolated. I know he's bitter. Uh, you need to spend more time with him or at least in person, on the phone, whenever you can. And I know that's hard because initially they're going to push you away. But, you know, this is where you kind of – it's that continual dropping of water. You know, you just keep going after them until they break down. And everybody sooner or later – does break down to some degree. Did the did the questioner, did they mention if this uh, man is a believer or not? I did not get that from the from the comment. Um, yeah, I mean... It, it, this doesn't want to talk about God. 
doesn't want to talk about no. God. Well, no. it, look, for, for a Christian, let's, let's work backwards for a second. For a Christian, look, we live in a fallen world with fallen people and a fallen angel running around looking to kill and destroy and to steal. And, and this is not a friendly <laughs> – we're in hostile territory. Um, this fallen world of ours has sickness and disease and crimes and, and all the rest. There is going to be heartache. Um, and I, I think of – if you're a believer – Paul had had a, a pretty hard life, you know. For, uh, I think it's First Corinthians eleven where he talks about kind of his his uh, his life that he was in danger in the city, danger in the country, danger from fellow sh- Jews. He was beaten with rods. Uh, he was stoned. He was uh, shipwrecked. He, he 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 on and on. He toiled and labored. His life was a mess after he became a believer. Christ does not offer a, a perfect. Uh, uh, worry-free life in this world. I shouldn't say worry-free, a a torment-free life in this world. In this world, we will have trials and tribulations. And yet Paul is the same guy that says, I rejoice in the Lord always. But if this guy is an unbeliever, well, then the simple answer is, is, is that he needs the Lord. And I think the best way to approach someone like that is to preach the word to them, to share your faith with them sure. to get them to turn to God cuz he's the only one that has that can bring hope. I think Christians have somehow bought into the idea that when you come to Jesus in this life everything's going to be okay. Every mm-hmm. problem is going to work out. There aren't going to be any diseases or headaches. The money's always going to be there. And in some cases the Lord does that for his own purposes. But for a lot of Christians it doesn't work that way. All right, we'll take a short break. When we come back, more time for your questions, 877-933-2484. I want to see these guys sweat, so you can ask the tough ones. We've got another uh, segment with Guy Talk in the extended version today. Again, 877-933-2484. Thanks so much for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. If you enjoy what you're finding here, consider subscribing to some of our other Faith Radio podcasts, like mine, for instance. You can search Susie Larson Live at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. All right, here's a question I think will make the power panel sweat a little bit, which I'm kind of looking forward to. In <laughs> Matthew, it talks about Jesus' birth and the wise men coming to visit. After they meet with King Herod, he asks them to inform him if they discover the child. Later on, it then talks about how King Herod slays all the children under two, all the boys under two. I'm a little confused about the timeline. Did they mean Jesus's? Uh, earthly parents leave immediately, or was it over a period of time? I can't seem to find that in Scripture. And can you point me in the direction where I can learn to study? I'm looking at Tom? you. Yeah. Well, as I'm looking at the Scripture here about this, you're right. The Scripture doesn't give you a definitive timeline. It simply talks about the fact that he was born in the stable and then it tells you what happened. The shepherds came, and then wise men came, but we have no reference of the time in there. 
And I think that the, the reference to two years and under, under should be a pretty good clue for us as to when the wise men saw the star the first time and then followed the star to find the baby Jesus. So undoubtedly, I don't know how long it would take to travel. Maybe you guys know from the Middle East, from Babylonia on camel to all the way to Bethlehem or to Jerusalem. But I measured it took quite a bit of time. And so they're saying, we saw this star three months ago, you know, or four months ago, and Herod then covers himself and says, let's just take out all the kids two years and under. So I don't know, but I think it was a longer period of time than what we think we see just here. I don't think it was one on top of the other. We see in the Christmas story all these events kind of compressed into one, and you're right. I think that people who have really looked at this, many of them have kind of concluded that Jesus was most likely born in late spring or early summer, and when the the sign of the star appeared in the sky, the Magi leave from the east. They were probably riding horses, though, and potentially not camels. I've read that some places before. I like camels, though. Yeah, I know. It looks better in a manger scene and all that kind of stuff. So then they show up and they appear in Jerusalem and they're looking for this king. And and Herod kind of convinces them that he was looking for this king as well. And so he calls these wise men together and they said, well, where is this king to be born? This is the interesting part of this story. They actually say in Bethlehem in Judea, because in the book of Micah is a prophecy that the Messiah, the, the future king of Israel would be born in Bethlehem. So Herod actually hears his own wise men tell them that this is where he's going to be. And instead of saying, oh, hey, we should find this guy. He then makes this proclamation after the Magi left that they should kill all the kids within within two years. It then says this in Matthew 2, verse 9, after they heard the king, they went on their way, and that is when an angel comes to Joseph that basically says, you need to flee to Egypt uh, to save the, the child Jesus from being killed uh, at the hands of Herod. Good point. How far, does anybody know the exact number of miles from Bethlehem and Judea to Jerusalem? I don't. I've heard it was like six miles, maybe seven. And what we see, yeah, it's, it was close. I've, I've I thought. taken that trip. It's very. It's on a bus. It only takes a few minutes. It's not that far. What I find interesting is that Herod, if he was really that worried about a Messiah, you know, five or six miles away, he could have sent people there right away to look. But he kind of poohoo's the whole thing. But then later on, he gets panicky when the wise men don't come back. And that's when he then decides to slay the children. Tells us a lot about his character. Mm -hmm. Hmm. All right, here's a battle of the word believe in James 2.19 versus John 3.16. Does the word believe have different meanings in these two verses? John 3.16 says that whosoever believes in him will be saved, while James 2.19 says that even the demons believe. You know, I actually had this as a study hmm. point for me. Somebody brought this up, and, and, and I contend that it's by faith, by believing that you are saved. And, and someone said, well, well, what about James 2.19? And so I went to the Greek, and I was convinced that I was going to find a different Greek word. Same word. Because it says even the demons believe and shudder, right? So that can't be the same belief as what is in places like John 3.16 and elsewhere. But sure enough— you get to James 2.19, and believe is actually the same word, pistuio. But here's the rub. Salvation is offered to men, 
not to demons. Jesus came as a man and offers salvation to men. The demons know, what does it say they believe? You believe there is one God. Do demons understand there's one God? And the answer is, of course they do. Remember when they shouted out to Jesus, we know who you are, the son of the most high God. They they know. So remember the two parts of the definition of this word believe, pistuyo, to believe it's true and to entrust for salvation. So here, pistuyo is to believe it's true. In John's 3.16, it's the fullness of this word pistuyo, to believe it's true and to entrust for salvation. And I think this is a good Bible study point. What you're touching on here is what I see all the time in terms of Bible study. You cannot isolate a verse like John 3.16, which we all grew up with if you grew up in the church, and somehow want to build your theology out of how that word believe is used there without looking at what else Jesus said about believing, which includes repentance, which includes submission to him. I mean, it, it is a process that we all go through, although there is an event and a time when we bow before Jesus. It is really much bigger than just simply saying, yeah, I agree with the facts. It is literally giving yourself over to him. The demons are not in a position to do that. They never would. They know the facts, and it scares them. Good word. Very good word. So I just got a listener chimed in. Five miles. It's a one-hour and 45-minute walk. Oh, thank you. Isn't that nice? All right. Let's see. Um, Would you do some extended commentary on... Where'd it go now? On Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is a huge passage because one of the uh, one of the arguments in, in a body of theology called kind of Calvinism, I'm going to wrap up Calvinism is in, in this kind of thought, that one of the complaints is that, well, if we believed in order to get saved, then we played a part in our own salvation somehow. And what what I think that theology misses is that faith is not a work. We know that we're not saved by works. The work of God is salvation. He does it all, but he does it to those who believe. And this passage, Romans 4, 5, proves that faith is not a work. It's not that we're working or have some part in our salvation, because it says this, to the one who does not work, but trusts or but believes, that same Greek word, pistuyo again, who believes God, who justifies the ungodly. So faith is not a work. Yeah, basically in the Old Testament, following the law and sacrificing the temple could be classified as a work. You're following the rules. You're going Mm -hmm. through with them. What we're being told here by Paul is that it is not in following the rules that a person gets saved. Like Abraham, it is by faith in the living God. And And that faith then, you know, finds itself lived out now in the way that we walk with Jesus from that point on. You know, we're saved, and now we walk with him for the rest of our life. And it, all of us here, we must admit, I mean, when I stand before Jesus, you know, and he says to me, why should I let you into my kingdom? I'm not going to be able to say it's what I did. It's only in who I trusted. Excellent. Gentlemen, thank you so much for an extended version of Guy Talk today. That was a lot of fun. Wonderful. And it went quickly, didn't it? It did. Very and, fast. And to, to the wonderful, amazing listeners who sent over Really great questions. Thank you for those. And our heart will, will continue to be soft for the people who are uh, wishing their husbands would pursue them 
to pray with them and do Bible study with them. Let that be um, an encouragement to men who might be listening. Go home and ask your wife, let's pray tonight. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, Dr. E. Cal Beisner will be joining me. Be right back. Welcome back to the show, and thanks to the guys for an outstanding extended version guy talk. That was a lot of fun, and I appreciate the faithfulness of Jeff and Tom and Justin and Peter and everybody else who has been part of Guy Talk. It's been a blast. So here's a statement to get things started. The warnings are loud and clear. The world is dangerously overpopulated. Natural resources are becoming scarce. Catastrophic man-made global warming could lead to the death of our planet. Now, having said that statement, are these accurate predictions we ignore at our own peril? Or are they politically motivated scare tactics designed to promote a radical agenda? Wouldn't you love to know the answer to that? Well, Fortunately, I've got Dr. Cal Beisner as my guest, and he's written a brand new book called Prospects for Growth, a biblical view of population, resources, and the future. And in this book, Dr. Beisner brings biblical values of theology, anthropology, and ethics to bear on these very critical questions. And we've got him on our studio line right now. Hello, Cal. How do you do? <laughs> Great to be back with yeah, you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I I hate to have to start off with a little correction, but Prospects for Growth is not a brand new book. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, we published that, or actually uh, Crossway Books published that back in 1990. But I stand by everything that's in it. No, I, I, <laughs> I believe it to I be was, true. Uh, and that was uh, my, yeah. my mistake. And I will send myself to bed tonight without dessert. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, Phil, you. it's great to be back with you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, let's uh, talk about some of these critical issues. Um, mm. Population. I want to start there. Um, we are we're, we are getting our, our planet is becoming overpopulated to some degree, isn't it? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm I'm all for two at this I mean, point. This is that's good. That's the simple answer. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's the simple answer. Um, first off. There is no objective definition at all given by anybody for overpopulation uh, in terms of human beings anyway. I mean, I suppose you can talk about the overpopulation of a Petri dish with bacteria. When those bacteria um, get dense enough, then uh, they eat the last of the, of the uh, food in the Petri dish, and at that point... Um, there's, there's nothing more to eat, so they all die off. Well, hu- people are not bacteria. And there is no definition of overpopulation in terms of population density, population growth rate, or population age distribution. Nothing like that. Um, there are places in the world that are very, very densely populated, like Manhattan or other uh, major city uh, urban centers. Uh, and there are places in the world that are extremely uh, sparsely populated, like Antarctica, but even like Australia, for example, the entire continent of Australia. And 
highly uh, densely populated areas may be very wealthy or they may be very poor. They may be they, they may have very clean environments or very filthy environments. Mm-hmm. None of the different things that people tend to associate with so-called overpopulation is exclusive to dense areas or are sparsely populated areas. Everything we find in one, we also can find in others uh, as far as you know the things that people worry about for overpopulation. The real risk that we face, Bill, is not getting too many people in the world, but the the, the devastating impacts on the world's economies as various populations begin to shrink. Uh, China is on the verge of, of that happening right now. It has had a uh, negative replacement uh, level uh, fert- fertility rate for 40-some years, and now they're reaching the point where uh, their elderly will be dying off faster than the uh, younger can replace them. And its economy is going to have serious problems because of that. Pretty much all of Europe has been below replacement level and fertility rate for nearly 25 years now. America has been below it for about a decade. Um, so what we're going to see is situations where increasingly we have large numbers of elderly people no longer able to care for themselves financially. And then smaller and smaller numbers of younger people uh, whose taxes on their incomes and and other economic activity uh, support old age uh, pensions and the like. Um, So that's going to be a serious problem. And even the UN Fund for Population Activities says that global population will probably peak around 2060 to 2080. And after that, it will begin to decline. And frankly, having written a whole book, which you mentioned at the start of the show, Prospects for Growth, a biblical view of population resources in the future, on these sorts of issues, I can tell you, uh, there is no, there's nothing on the horizon that would lead to a change in the behavior patterns that have been associated with economic uh, growth uh, in the future. As societies get richer and richer, their, their, their married couples tend to choose to have fewer and fewer children. And until we see something that will turn that relationship around, what we can look forward to is a, a fairly rapidly shrinking global population and some very big problems that will come with that. Wow. My guest is Dr. Cal Beisner. We're talking about his new book that he wrote in 1990 called Prospects for Growth. <laughs> A Biblical View of Population, Resources, and the Future. So, Cal, are natural resources, are they becoming scarce? Uh, the answer to that one is no. Uh, but you didn't, you didn't say that they are, so you, you, you didn't well, miss not, out on this one. I'm though. not putting myself out there anymore. <laughs> yeah, the answer is lesson. no. Okay. Yeah, you know, there is just one measure of scarcity, and that is the, the relationship between supply of something and demand for it at some price uh, because you know you don't get anything for nothing except salvation in Christ Jesus and there even even there uh, Christ paid the price for us but for everything else we have to pay one way or another 
And a higher price indicates a greater scarcity. A lower price indicates a lower scarcity. Every single thing we extract from the earth in the way of natural resources, whether it's minerals or plants or animals, every single thing we extract from the earth has a long-term downward price trend because human beings are really creative. You know, we're not just mouths. For every mouth born into the world, there are two hands and a mind. And that mind can guide those two hands to produce far more than it consumes in its lifetime. And in fact, back when I wrote my book, Prospects for Growth, uh, a free copy of which, by the way, Cornwall Alliance will send uh, as our way of saying thank you when anybody makes a gift uh, of any amount, doesn't matter how large or small, and asks for it. All they need to do is go to cornwallalliance.org and click on the donate button and, and fill out the form and write that request in. At any rate, back when I wrote that book, the average American male produced about 13 times as much as he consumed in his lifetime. Um, and the average American female about six or seven times as much as she consumed. That gave us men, Bill, much reason to boast. Um, until we realize that, of course, the average American male comes from the average American female. <laughs> so she produces mm -hmm. what she produces directly plus indirectly everything we produce too. Mm -hmm. At any rate, the long-term price trend is downward for everything we extract from the earth. And that's uh, clear proof that all of these things are less scarce now than they were 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And they're getting less scarce because people are so good at making them, at, at finding them, at refining them, at replacing them with other resources because we're made in God's image to be creative and productive as he is. Instead of uh, consuming all the earth's resources, we're actually multiplying them. Mm -hmm. Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest. Cal, what about the catastrophic man-made global warming? Is that going to lead to the death of our planet? Uh, no, very definitely not. And, you know, you can even go to the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and search through their thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of scientific reports and never find any language like crisis, uh, catastrophe, existential threat, anything of that sort. Wow. No, you will find that language sometimes in their press releases or in the statements of the UN Secretary General who called their last major report of this sort code red for humanity, though you couldn't find that language anywhere in there either. Um, no, the, the IPCC's projections actually tell us that by the end of this century, most uh, societies in the world, most countries in the world, will be anywhere from, oh, about uh, 10 times to 40 or 50 times as wealthy as they are today. And that if we do nothing at all to slow global warming, the negative impact of that warming might reduce global uh, GDP per capita by 2 or 3% from that 10 to, you know, 20 times uh, richer that people will be. So it's clearly a, a really bit player in human well-being. And uh, in fact, there are reasons to think that 
The kind of warming that we can expect from adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere is more beneficial than harmful because it happens primarily toward the poles, not toward the equator, in the winter, not in the summer, and at night, not in the daytime, which means that it raises low temperatures and doesn't do much at all to high temperatures. That's great because cold snaps on average kill 20 times as many people per day as do heat waves. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would have fewer and less severe cold snaps because of this. It's also great because it lengthens the growing season between last frost in the spring and first frost in the autumn. And it also expands the region in which we can effectively grow crops. So those are all good. And then besides that, that added carbon dioxide in the atmosphere also makes all plants grow better. And on average, they, uh, they increase you know, for, a, for a doubling of CO2 in the atmosphere. They increase their plant growth efficiency by about 35%. They grow better in wetter and drier and warmer and, and uh, cooler soil and climate, and they resist disease and pests better, and that makes more food for everything that needs, you know, that eats plants, whether directly or indirectly. That's especially good for the world's poor uh, who need abundant, affordable, uh, reliable food sources, and adding CO2 to the atmosphere definitely increases that. Cal, I just have to say, you, it, compared to what we've heard from the media, it sounds like everything you're saying, like you've just come from Mars. Yeah, sometimes I feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> because everything you said, I go, this just makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, and besides that, not only does it make perfect sense, but you will find most of that pretty clearly revealed in the scientific reports from mm-hmm. the UN IPCC. Where you won't find it is in their summaries for policymakers, That's because those summaries for policymakers are actually written primarily by government bureaucrat appointees, uh, representatives to the IPCC, rather than by the scientists themselves. And here's a a really (laughs) just amazingly crazy fact for you. Here is the process by which the summary for for policymakers is is, uh, constructed. First, the scientists create their great big huge thousands of pages report. Second, a few of those scientists, a very few, get together with representatives from all 190 some countries that are part of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and they draft the summary for policymakers. But that summary then gets combed through by every representative from every country, making sure that everything in it fits his country's uh, political agenda, the, the agenda of his country's leaders. And so they, they revise all the sentences. They finally come with some, up with something they all agree to. And then guess what? They go back to the big scientific reports and they make sure that nothing is left in those that contradicts the summary, wow. which is kind of absolutely backward of how you would think about doing a summary. Wow. So the summary is highly political. The scientific reports are much better. Wow, amazing. Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest. You can go to cornwallalliance.org learn more about Cal and his amazing team. And also, you can get a copy of his book, Prospects for Growth, with a donation of any size. We'll take a break and be right back. If you have a question for Cal, 877-933-2484.
Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest, and we're chatting about his new book he wrote 22 years ago called Prospects for Growth, a Biblical View of Population Resources and the Future. So, Cal, here's a couple of questions that have come in. Uh, what about sure. rare earth elements? Does this hold true for them as well in terms of natural resources being depleted? Uh, yes, it does. Um, the What you need to do, there are two adjustments you have to make for all such data over long time spans. One is an adjust, adjustment for inflation. So when you adjust for inflation, the price of the various different minerals that we take out of the earth, including meta metallic minerals, um, from 1800 to today, the decline in their price is 99%. That's pretty what? Say that again. Some are a little less than that, a little bit more than that. The decline in the inflation-adjusted price of all the minerals that we take out of the earth, on average, is over 99%. Okay. Some are a little, little less, some a little more. Um, rare earths are included in that. And by the way, I'm not sure why the term rare earths ever got applied to these things, because they're not actually all that rare. Um, it's that their their concentration in the typical soil is is not particularly high, but they actually exist in the in the uh, crust of the earth all over the planet, hmm. and so they're not all that terribly rare. Um, <clears throat> the uh, what is important about the rare earths, though, is that currently most of the mining of them happens in third world countries, uh, developing countries. Uh, plus China, which I don't think we should call a developing country anymore, though the UN still does. Uh, that means that it can still qualify for various international aid that uh, develop, other developing countries get too. But at any rate, much of this mining happens in China or in countries in Africa under very, very poor environmental uh, regulation conditions and often with slave or child labor or child slave labor uh, in these places. So uh, the demand that we substitute wind and solar, which have a great uh, reliance on these rare earths, for oil, coal, or natural gas as our our, our, uh, energy sources, uh, is really a demand that we go to a dirtier earth and a a more slavery-oriented earth. global economy. And that's besides the fact that wind and solar uh, cannot compete with oil, coal, and natural gas in terms of, of providing energy per co- you know, cost per unit of, of energy provided. Um, and there are a number of different physics and engineering reasons uh, why that's so. Mm-hmm. Here's another question, Kel. I've seen massive species loss in the last 10 years from growing up in northern Wisconsin. When I was young, uh, there were so many more monarchs and insects and birds. Does this concern you? Um, you know, I would need to know something more about the specific situation there in that specific locale uh, to tell me whether that 
really concerned me, uh, to, to tell you whether that really concerned me or not. Um, I, I think one of the things that we have to do is to to distinguish carefully between uh, anecdotal evidence and uh, robust statistical evidence. Um, what I have seen is that uh, there are declining populations of some species, including some butterfly species, um, and those are those are driven primarily by changes in local conditions, global average temperature, which is what people have in mind in terms of climate change, has next to nothing to do with that. Uh, in fact, instead, an increase in global average temperature, because it happens primarily toward the poles at night and in the winter, should actually increase the range of pretty much all different species because it increases the range of the various plant life on which other species depend. So uh, I, I would add this too. There have been lots and lots of predictions of rapid extinction rates. Consistently, those predictions come from mathematical models rather than from real-world observation. And uh, as an example, when the International Union for the Conservation of Nature uh, sponsored a multi-continent study by eco uh, ecosystems analysts of extinctions in the ecosystems where these people were expert, whereas they expected to find hundreds, even thousands of uh, clear extinctions, they found none at all. And they reported all of this in a book called uh, uh, hmm, Deforestation and Species Extinction or something of that sort. Mm -hmm. At any rate, there's not good empirical evidence for rapid species loss going on today, uh, despite the fact that plenty of, pl of uh, environmental activists are claiming that there is. Mm -hmm. Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest. Cal, in your book, Prospects for Growth, which people can get uh, free with any size donation at cornwallalliance.org, in the, your appendix, uh, you talk about the uh, birth deficit, the impact of abortion yes. on the future American economy. I'd love for you to talk about that as it's such a big topic right now. In this yes, and that deficit, absolutely. That deficit has, of course, grown tremendously since I published that book. That book came out in 1990, which is just 17 years after Roe v. Wade. We've now had another 32 years. Uh, we, have, we have aborted over 60 million people in the past uh, 40 what is it now, 49 years mm -hmm. since Roe v. Wade. And uh, now all of those people, ex except those born in the last, say, 18 years, could be uh, working in the, in the workforce. They could be producing wealth, uh, producing uh, materials, uh, products and services to sell to other people. That would not only <laughs> increase the supply of such things relative to the demand for them, which would uh, reduce the inflation that we've all been suffering from re recently, but it would also result in more tax uh, revenues, including Social Security tax revenues, which would mean that you would have uh, more people working now to support those who are retired now. Um, we would have a smaller uh, government uh, uh, debt 
we would have a smaller annual deficit and mm. we would probably have a smaller uh, trade deficit as well had we not aborted all of those people. Mm -hmm. But of course, the big issue is not you know, how much might they have produced economically. The big issue is they're human beings created in the image of God Amen. and killing them uh, other than in self-defense or, or, uh, or uh, the defense of someone else's life or as punishment for a crime, or in just warfare. And, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine how infants in the womb could fit any of those. Killing them otherwise is murder. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a terrible blot on America. It is a great reason for God to, to send judgment on this country, and that's why the biggest thing I pray for is revival, widespread revival, a third great awakening, uh, in which the church leads the way in repentance for for neglecting and disobeying God's law and uh, in which people turn for justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and then are taught to obey all things that God has commanded us as the Great Commission mm -hmm. instructs. So good. Cal, always a delight to have you on the show. Thank you so much for the way you have thought about this, prayed about this, studied this, and communicated it so effectively. I appreciate that very much. Well, thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate your having me on the program always. And, yeah. Uh, uh, one other thing I'd like to recommend is that your listeners also look for our podcast called Created to Reign, that's R-E-I-G-N, <laughs> and uh, make sure that they see the one that is from the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. There was awesome. another podcast of that title about four years ago, but it quit very quickly. All right. Created to rate. Thank you so much, Cal. Have a great rest of the evening. Thank you, Bill. You God bet. bless. You bet. Dr. Cal Beisner has been my guest. You can learn more about him at cornwallalliance.org. That is the show for today. Oh, I've enjoyed this. I hope you have too. Thank you for uh, spending time with me today. If you are hearing the podcast, maybe tonight, welcome to the show Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting Faith Radio. Have a great night, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.